Morning. It's <laughs> kind of musical. <laughs> Did you guys plan that? I'm good. How's everybody? Good. Blessed, grateful. Good. So you'll notice that your notes don't have a lot of notes in them. I'm kind of in the middle of the battle of the blinks. Do we have them? Do we not have them? I just really didn't accomplish either goal this time. If you like the way I did my notes, let me know. If you did not like it, don't tell me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. No, please give feedback. We're interested. We're trying to reevaluate how we do notes, so tell me. Anyways, a few years ago, I was watching a documentary on Netflix that was about a bunch of... um, optometrists and ophthalmologists that went to North Korea. And they went there as a group, and their goal there while they uh, were in the area was to remove cataracts from people's eyes. And in North Korea, many people had cataracts, and they had not been uh, properly addressed. So some people had been blind for years because of a reversible disease, a reversible condition. So these doctors, they gather everyone in a room, and they remove the cataracts, and they wrap their eyes And then after a period of time, when uh, their eyes are healed, they bring them back into this room that looks a lot like a church. It's almost got pews like a church. And they unwrap each individual person's eyes. And some of these people are seen for the first time in years. A really important form of understanding the world is returned to them. It's blowing their mind. They're weeping in excitement because they can see again. And then without fail, every single one of them walked up and knelt before a large picture of Kim Jong-un and thanked him for returning their sight. You can have 20-20 vision and you can still be profoundly blind. Today we're going to talk about spiritual blindness. Open your Bibles to Mark 8.22 and we'll read it together. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, or sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Amen? All right. Jesus' healing of the blind man is not just a miracle, it is a parable. Here's what I mean. When we understand what is happening more fully, we see that Jesus is doing something more significant than just returning physical sight to the blind man at Bethesda. Here, he's going to teach us something about our own spiritual blindness. All right? All right? So I'll say things to you. I'll say like, all right, or... do. How are you? Like, 
Respond to me so I know you're with me. I prefer the responses. Can be kind of lonely. All right? Thank you. Don't blow it, guys. All right? Best service so far. Don't tell the other ones I said that. Don't tell the other ones I said that. Here's what I think this passage is teaching us about spiritual blindness. Number one, everyone is spiritually blind. And number two, Jesus is faithful to restore vision to those who have faith. We'll get to these two points, but I want to work through the placement and the characteristics of this passage so we can understand it well when we get back to what I think it's teaching. Does that sound good to you? You'll stay with me? All right. The placement of this passage in Mark's gospel is really significant. In fact, Mark is the only gospel writer that includes this particular narrative. We are getting to the hinge point in the gospel, the transition period. Often the life of Jesus is divided into two halves. The first half is his itinerant ministry. This is when Jesus goes around to different places. He teaches, he performs miracles, he does signs, he has conflict with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. We call this Jesus' itinerant ministry because he walks around and does different things. This is where the word about Jesus grows. This is where his fame grows. It says the word goes out everywhere, and when he goes places, the crowds mass together so fully that they crowd people out from doors, they gather in groups of thousands. Jesus becomes famous over the first eight chapters of Mark. And so many times, I've walked through this growing fame, the growing growing notoriety. People are blown away by the things that Jesus does. He heals He forgives sins. He teaches like nobody has ever seen. He has the support of the masses. He beats the Jewish elites, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, in vigorous debates, in battles of wits. He is clever. He is devastatingly powerful. He's remarkably passionate. He is frustratingly countercultural. But one of the most prominent characteristics of Jesus that grows in the first eight chapters of Mark is that Jesus is mysterious. And he allows that mystery to hang there. We see it here. He heals the blind man. And when the blind man can see again, he says, go straight home, don't stop in the villages. The question of Jesus' identity looms very large in the story of Mark. And I think that's on purpose. Jesus meant to be mysterious, at least in the beginning. Even at the moment of arguably his greatest miracle, the calming of the stormy sea, the disciples, now a little bit afraid, ask each other, who is this guy that even the wind and the sea obey him? Because they don't know yet. And Mark doesn't give us a straightforward answer. Not here. No one but Jesus knows. And then we get a series of passages 
that all have to do with spiritual blindness. Who remembers what Mike spoke about two weeks ago? Big, big room. Seeing is not believing. That was, was really, that's like very specific. Where are you at, Mike? Oh, he's not here. You hear that. Bummer. He would be very excited. You remember his exact words. Okay? What happens? This is what I do. I teach a class of Biola and I ask a question and then just painfully stand there until someone answers. <laughs> Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what do they want from him? A sign from heaven. You guys knew. You guys knew. What happened? Come on. You guys knew. A sign from heaven. They asked Jesus for a sign from heaven because they're not totally convinced of who he is. They oppose him. They're spiritually blind. Jesus has done all these amazing things, but they still want a sign from heaven. Mike taught us that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are spiritually blind, and in their case, maybe they are permanently blind. And then Zach, Pastor Zach, speaks last week. What does he speak on? This is more recent. Okay, all right. A lot of stuff going on there. A lot of varied answers. A little disconcerting. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. The disciples are in a boat with Jesus, right? And they're afraid because they've not brought enough bread. They only have a little bit of bread. Jesus is in the boat with them, and they're afraid because they might run out of food. Because they've, I guess, forgotten that just like a little while ago, he took exactly what they had and fed 4,000 people. And we learn here that also the disciples are spiritually blind. Right? Pastor Zach reminded us that we are all born spiritually blind. It is a prevalent, it's a pervasive problem. It's exhaustive. And all of these passages about spiritual blindness... They're leading up to a passage in our Bibles titled Peter's Confession. We're not there yet in the narrative, but we're close. We are at a crucial moment where Jesus performs a miracle meant to be read as a parable of the disciples' spiritual blindness and our own spiritual blindness. And there are a number of contextual clues that can help us come to this conclusion. First, this miracle is one of two that only appears in Mark's gospel. Here, Jesus heals a blind man, and about a chapter before, he heals a deaf man. You can open your Bibles to Mark 7, 31, and you can read together with me this passage. I'm going to read it to you. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Do you see the similarity between these two passages? Do you see the similarity between these two passages? Okay. As I already noted, they're the only two that appear only in Mark. 
Matthew, Luke, and John don't include them. Mark has Jesus healing a blind man and a deaf man in the short space of just two chapters. And to my knowledge, to the best of my abilities and research, there is no passage anywhere in the Old Testament or anywhere in contemporary Judaism where anyone heals someone else of blindness or deafness. It is only promised that God or His anointed one will, in the time of God's deliverance, do this for His people. But these two passages that Mark only includes describe Jesus as doing just that. He heals the blind. He heals the deaf. Listen to the Old Testament describes the richness of the promises of God. Psalm 146 says this, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Now, sometimes psalms are metaphorical. But if we continue in Isaiah, we'll see that God promises uh, additional times. And that day, the deaf shall hear the word of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah says it again in chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Amen? Amen. When Jesus goes about doing these things, those who are familiar with the promises of the Old Testament begin to get excited because they're seeing something awesome happen. I think this includes his disciples. They know their Old Testament, and they're beginning to put together who Jesus is. Mark is telling a story about how Jesus has come to fulfill the promises that God himself has made to his people. Mark is telling the story of God returned to heal. Still, perhaps the most troubling part or difficult part of this passage is the fact that it is the only two-stage healing. You can continue with me in verse 23. It says, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. It almost seems like Jesus doesn't get it right the first time. I think for many, this can be a little bit troubling. Did Jesus fail at a miracle? The blind man looks around and says that he sees things now, but he sees men walking around like trees. And when I read trees, I thought, oh, maybe there's something cool here. I'll look in all the commentaries. (laughs) Something real profound to share with you guys. I looked in all of them, I promise. Basically, the use of trees here is just to illustrate for us that Jesus' first touch was effective. It did something. The guy could see a little bit now, but it wasn't complete. He still is confusing people for trees and trees for people. In many cases in the Gospels, the healings that Jesus performs are totally instantaneous. They're limited in description. They're terse and quick and very, very, very straightforward. It also appears to be the case that Jesus doesn't normally need to ask if his healing was effective When he heals the paralytic in chapter 2, he doesn't ask him if he can get up and walk. He just says, get up, 
grab your mat and go home. And that's what happens. It would have been relatively, or not relatively, extremely anticlimactic if the guy had been like, oh, I can't do that. I can't walk. Jesus was so sure, so certain that his miracle would work, that it would be effective, that the man would be healed. He can command him to stand up. He's not concerned that it won't work. He is incredibly self-assured, as he should be. But here, not only does Jesus ask about the result, we discover that the healing is not yet complete. The man's vision is still blurry. There's still a level of dissonance, a certain degree of blurriness. And we read on in verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes And his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So Jesus touches the man a second time. And we get a very different picture. The language used here is exhaustive. It's in stark contrast to the first time Jesus touches this man. Mark uses three different Greek verbs here. Each one after the next to convey more fully the totality, the thoroughness, the completeness of Jesus' healing. The first means that his eyes were completely opened. The second means they were restored and healed. The third means that all of the things that were around him, he could see clearly. Men didn't look like trees anymore. Mark could have only used one word. That may have sufficed. But he is intentionally stressing the completeness of Jesus' miracle. Does that make sense? If the first touch leaves us underwhelmed and uncertain about Jesus' power and Jesus' care, the second touch should provide for us complete confidence that Jesus is able to heal. No other miracle uses so many words to describe the depth and thoroughness of healing. There's a surplus of words here, a richness. Even still, Though at the end the healing is complete and we're left no room to doubt that, according to the text, we're still left with a difficult question of why it seems that it took Jesus two attempts to heal the guy. The answer, I think, lies in where Mark places this passage in his gospel. Remember, we are at the hinge of the narrative, the transition in the story. Jesus' itinerant ministry is coming to a close. He will now begin to more intensely train his disciples, and his eyes have pointed towards Jerusalem, the city of his death. The very next passion, passage is often titled Peter's Confession. Is it titled that in your Bibles? Okay. Let me read it to you, starting in 827. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and after three days rise again, and he spoke plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Remember that I said our passage today is a parable. Remember that I said our passage today is a parable. This is where we get a fuller explanation of what is happening in the twofold healing of the blind man. I've already said that the question of Jesus's identity looms very large in this text, in this gospel. People are constantly asking who Jesus is, and he is constantly keeping it somewhat under wraps. So finally, he asks his disciples the all-important question. Who am I? And Peter answers. He's ready. He's been watching what Jesus has done. He's seen the blind man and the deaf man cured. He's seen the seas calmed. He's seen the paralytic raised. He's seen a girl raised back to life. He's been putting it together, and he's ready for Jesus to ask this question. And he gets his moment. Jesus asks him, Who am I? And Peter responds, you are the Christ in this pivotal scene in the gospel. Peter knows scripture. He's witnessed all the things Jesus has done and he's ready. He remembers what the Messiah, what the Christ is supposed to do. Heal the blind, heal the deaf, heal the paralytic. And he puts it together and he gets it mostly right. He sees a little but not completely. Because when Jesus explains what the Christ has come to do, when he tells Peter that every miracle and every sermon has been another nail in his coffin, another nail in his hands, Peter finds that absolutely unacceptable. Jesus says, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. And Peter's like, no, 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 that's not what you're going to do. (laughs) And Peter rebukes Jesus. Mike has been giving you pro tips. I have one for you. Don't rebuke Jesus. There's a sure way to get called Satan. Even at the high point of Peter's knowledge in Mark, this leader of the disciples, one of Jesus' closest followers, the one who's watched all of these things happen, still only has partially clear vision. He's still a little bit blind, just like the blind man at Bethsaida. A two-stage healing. A gradual healing. He wouldn't understand fully until after the resurrection, when Jesus is raised from the dead and vindicated by God. Now we can understand Jesus is healing the blind man as a lesson about the way that Jesus heals us of our spiritual blindness. So, my two points. First, everyone is spiritually blind. Second, Jesus is faithful to restore vision to those who have faith. When we see Jesus restore the sight of the blind man, we should see here an image of Jesus restoring sight to the spiritually blind. And first, everyone is spiritually blind. This gospel is super clear about this. 
We're given the expected picture of the Pharisees and the Sadducees being spiritually blind. They oppose Jesus. They argue with him all the time. They collude together and plan to kill him. They're the bad guys. We hate those guys, right? Of course they're spiritually blind. That's what we expect them to be. We see it when they demand a sign from heaven and we're not surprised they're spiritually blind because they're the bad guys in the Gospels. But the next chapter has the disciples in a boat with Jesus right after he's fed 4,000 with a little bit of bread and they're still worried where their food is coming from. So the disciples are spiritually blind too. These two groups represent everyone. Spiritual blindness is pervasive. It's exhaustive. There is no one that is immune from it. There is no one that has not been touched by it. Some of us are blind to the fact that God exists in the first place. We go outside and we see uh, the mountains and the trees and the stars. We look at nature and we find it beautiful, and we say, accident. Some of us are spiritually blind to that. Others who are here today are like Peter or the blind man after Jesus first touched him. We have some understanding of Jesus, but it is vague and blurry. And some of us know this. Maybe there are people here, maybe some of us here, over the last week or two weeks or today or right now, we've been aware of Jesus, but it suddenly clicked into place that Jesus matters, and maybe we don't know entirely why. That's also a type of spiritual blindness. Some people think that they know who Jesus is, but they misunderstand how he is meant to be in their life. Some of us do that. This is where Jesus' question to Peter becomes so crucially important. He asked, who do the people say that I am? And then more importantly, who do you say that I am? Peter had watched Jesus raise the paralytic. He had been invited into the private room where Jesus raised a small girl back to life. He had been at the feeding of the 4,000, at the 5,000. He had stood inside a boat that was breaking apart and watched the elements of the earth obey Jesus as he silenced a hurricane. He had just seen the curing of the blind man and the deaf man. He had been there the whole time and sees Jesus do all these amazing, dumbfounding, almost terrifying things. And even Peter only gets it half right. What we do is what Peter did. Peter understands who Jesus is, but not why he has come. That's unacceptable to him. Jesus says, the only Lord worth worshiping is the one who went to the cross, and Peter doesn't like that. So he tells Jesus, that's not the one I want you to be. We do that. That is another form of spiritual blindness. Many of us are interested in a moral Jesus, a Jesus who teaches us how to be good, a mentor, a sage, a wise man. That is not at the heart of why Jesus came. Jesus did not live on earth just to teach us how we should live. He came to live the life that we should have, but simply couldn't. 
It is problematic if we think the most important thing that Jesus does is teach us how to be good. We cannot be good. Jesus had to be good for us. Read that as Jesus had to go to the cross. Jesus doesn't teach us how to take our own blinders off, how to heal ourselves. He himself is cast into the darkness of a tomb so that the eyes of our heart could be opened in the first place. Darkness covered him, and with his resurrection, the light of life is for us. If we want a moral Jesus alone, we're spiritually blind. Maybe some people see Jesus as like a cultural marker or a cultural badge. I do this, and I have done this historically. I grew up in this church, some of you know that, and I would meet in this room for a high school group on Tuesday nights, and I would sit at a table in the back, and um, like, you know, my, my small group leader would be at the table with me and I would tell him, I, uh, I already know all the Christian answers. I'm very Christian. I'm a level 100 Christian. I watched Christian movies. I listened to Christian music. Anybody remember like Petra or the Supertones? Some people. I listened to that. I always caught Touched by an Angel before bed. I was like, Mom, please let me stay up watch Touched by an Angel. I want to see what Tess and Monica do this week. At the core of that version of Jesus is a religiosity that I think flies in the face of what the gospel demands of us. We don't want a Jesus that went to the cross because we are evil. Instead, we just want to wear a cross around our necks. Jesus is not just a cultural badge of honor. He's not just a thing we associate with culturally. He's not just like the mascot of our group. That's a type of spiritual blindness if that's the Jesus we want. Some of us think that Jesus is the one who teaches us to care for the physical needs of others, and that is partly true. And as a church, we are meant to care for those in the most horrific, helpless situations, but it would be a tragedy if I thought that the most important blindness Jesus cured was physical blindness. Like those people with cataracts in North Korea, we can have physical sight but still be profoundly blind. Jesus sees the paralytic who cannot walk, and the first thing he does is forgive his sins. He is not merely interested in opening one's eyes to the physical world around him. He wants the eyes of our hearts to be opened to who he is and what he has done for us and how our lives must be different because of it. Amen. We can be blind in so many ways beyond this. I have been and still continue to be blind in so many ways beyond this. Even as mature Christians, we can be blind because the opening of the eyes of our hearts is gradual, like the eyes of the blind men at Bethsaida. We are saved in a moment. We are healed over a lifetime. An important side point here. We are all at different stages of blindness. There's a problem in many churches, in our church. It's a problem that is in my heart as well. I will see people in the church that I reckon to be worse sinners than me, and I take pride in that. We all do, right? When I do that, I make a mockery of the work that God is doing in that person's life. 
Let's be a church that is not filled with arrogance and self-pride in our own accomplishments, but that recognizes that the ground at the level of the cross is completely equal. God is working in all of us, and in all of us it's gradual. Everyone is spiritually blind. Number two, Jesus is faithful to restore vision to those who have faith. So what do we do about spiritual blindness? What do we do about it? We can do nothing but respond to the question Jesus asked the blind man. Jesus says to him, do you see anything? And the blind man responds, my vision's still not clear. And then Jesus goes right back to work. We seek God in prayer, in the reading of his word, in the fellowship of our church, but we must ask God in faith for our vision to be cured. We don't do it. Who does it? He does. At first, for many, our prayers are about our own blindness. At the end of the healing that we read today, the language that Mark uses to describe its completeness is succinct and it's florid. And what I mean by that is it's simple and it's beautiful. His eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He could see everything clearly. That's what we're wanting, right? But we are often dissatisfied with gradual healing. We look at our lives at the way we struggle with sin, at the temptations we don't feel like we can conquer. Who think it's about us? And we are discouraged because we feel like God hasn't brought us as far as we should be. But God works in our lives without us even noticing. This does not mean you do not make war on sin. However, it means that any war you make is only successful if it's powered by God. You have to have faith in him. When I look back at myself a decade ago, oh, a little more than that now, in high school, like 14 years ago, and I think about that 16-year-old who sat at his high school group table and told his Christian mentor that he knew all the answers, he was good. I'm like, that guy's an idiot. I hate that guy. Some of you knew that guy, right? Personally, oh man, he's an idiot. Such a dummy. A decade from now, when I look back at myself now, I want to be able to think the same thing. That guy was an idiot. Not because I want to be stupid now. I don't. I don't want to be stupid now. But because I want to be wiser then. I want to see that I've grown. If I understand that God's work in my life is gradual, I should also recognize that it is not always perceptible. Not in the moment, not all the time. It isn't always at the rate that I desire. But I think this passage teaches us that gradual change is effective. I must continue to have faith that God is working in me and always have the same prayer as the blind man. I still don't see clearly give me sight. Our tendency is to want big and magnificent signs in our life like the Pharisees and Sadducees asked for. Instead, we should pray to have eyes that see the signs that are already there. I want to challenge you who have been here for a while, look back. Look back at where you were before you knew Jesus, when you first met Jesus, 
That should give you confidence that God is still working in you. More importantly, look back even further than that. All of this must be rooted in the most profound act of healing that God did in Jesus on the cross. The disciples still did not understand his mission when he asked them. Jesus would reveal it to them, but only after he was finished with the cross, after he had left the tomb. This passage is draped over the precipice of the purpose of Jesus, the healing of the blind man. It is not enough to know who Jesus is. We must understand and respond to why he came in the first place. The greatest victory, the one that ensures all the future ones, has already been had on the cross. We can have confidence in those future victories because of that first one. Beyond this, beyond our own hearts, I know there are people here today who have loved ones, who have friends, who have family that aren't saved, that don't know Jesus, and you desperately want to see them come into a saving knowledge. You pray, and you stay up at night, and you are terrified for their future, and you pray, God, save my brother, save my sister, bring my children back. Bring my husband back. Bring my wife back. And it's painful. And some of us, over time, lose confidence in God's ability to heal them. Listen to what Spurgeon says as he teaches this passage. Let us never give way to despair concerning any person. However far he may have gone into sin... Who but the divine Savior could open the eyes of this blind man? Nobody. Yet he could do it. So if your friend be very sinful and hardened, no one but the Lord can save him, but he can do it. So believe that he can do it, and in prayer, bring your friend to the Savior as these people of Bethsaida brought this blind man to Christ. Your hope is not in yourself or your ability to communicate to them. Your hope is in Jesus and his ability to heal. I want to challenge you to pray that God would reverse your spiritual blindness. That he would reverse the spiritual blindness of those you pray for and those you meet. Regardless of how long you've been a Christian, regardless of how long you've been attending this church or any other church, how much script you have memorized, how much you pray, how much seminary training you have, how much you read the Bible, whatever, all that stuff. No matter how long you've been a Christian, your prayer, your prayer should still be the same as the blind man. Jesus says to him, do you see anything? Is your vision still blurry? Your prayer should be, I see some, but I want to see more. As we close, I want you to make this hymn from Samuel Longfellow your prayer. And it's short and it's easy to remember. Holy Spirit, truth divine, dawn upon this soul of mine. Word of God and inward light, wake my spirit, clear my sight. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the profound blessing it is to meet together as a group, to worship your name, to learn more about you. I pray 
for the hearts of those here, the eyes of the hearts of those here, that you would faithfully restore their vision, that they would ask in faith. Each week, we try and have a moment where people can respond to the gospel message.